Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, just if you would open up your uh, Bibles with me, we're going to be uh, reading two um, chunks of Scripture, right? And uh, um, the first text we're going to read is uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 15. And then, uh, so we're going to read Acts, chapter 15, 36 through chapter 16, verse 10. And then we're going to rewind. We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to uh, read there chapter 4, verse 7 through 16. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to read it to you all right now, okay? So Acts 15, 36 through 16, verse 10. And um, e- Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 7 through 16. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord." And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who was alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, sweet, what we're going to do is we're going to just camp out a little bit here in, in, in the book of Acts. But we're going to spend a majority of our time here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, today, I really want to talk to you about partnerships in the gospel. And this has been a text that, you know, like uh, the, 
uh, our life group had gone over in our study uh, this past week. But this has been a text that has been so just pivotal in my life. And um, just here in Acts chapter 16, God has just been ministering. Um, like today, though, like was not supposed to be here preaching. All right. Um, found out early this morning that needed to preach this morning. Um, Brad is not feeling well at all. And like the flu has been like just one by one uh, hitting all of us as staff. Like earlier, coming from Orlando earlier this week, just terrible, terrible, um, just head cold. And, uh, but it was great because God was ministering to me through that. He was, he was saying, I want you to read Hebrews. And as I was reading Hebrews, just, just, just the couple words that stuck out to me was, was it be strengthened by the grace you have in Jesus. And you know, as I was just sitting there, just, just being ministered to by the word, by, by Jesus, and just thinking of how his grace strengthens, strengthens us as believers. But all of, our, all of our staff have been getting sick, so if you would please keep them in prayer. But, um, so I was just, as soon as, as soon as I got off the phone this morning with, with Brad, um, I said, no problem, I'll be there, and don't worry about it. And uh, the first words that came to my mind was, was when Paul had told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And I said, okay, Lord, whatever it is. And just been thinking, God, what are some things that you've been putting on my heart recently? And I thought of a, of a message that I preached in Ecclesiastes before, but one of the things that had come to my mind was, was partnerships in the gospel. How as believers, I mean, we understand the concept of, of partnerships and, you know, we understand the, the importance of business partnerships and, and husband and wife and, and teaming up, you know, but how often today, all right, do we take gospel initiatives and partner with other people, like serious gospel initiatives where God has given us a vision to pursue in the context of, of community? That's what we wanted to, that's what I wanted to tackle. And you look here in, in the book of Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we know that we know something here had happened between Paul and Barnabas. We know that there was a little, not a little, there was a serious, that the, the disagreement was so sharp that they, that they separated. Okay. And, um, we see here, um, in verse 37, the arguments centered around taking them, taking with them, John, Mark. Now, at some point, I mean, you read earlier in chapter 13, John Mark had, had, had deserted uh, Paul for whatever reason. I mean, we, we, we don't specifically know why he had left, but he had, he had left. And we know that as, uh, as, as Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church of Antioch to continue to take the gospel, they were, they were, they were commended, they, the elders laid hands on them. We know that they were to, to do this work, and they were to continue to do so. And Barnabas is like, we're going to take, take John Mark with us. It's common to take a helper with him, but Paul's like, no, and we can understand the disagreement. I mean, Paul's like, you know what? We're going to do some pioneer mission work. All right. And we need to make sure we have guys that are committed. Maybe this is the mindset of Paul saying, you know what? And earlier, all right, Mark left us. All right. So he's not coming with us. And Barnabas, whose, whose name means son of encouragement, right? He's like, Hey man, everybody makes mistakes. All right. I mean, are you perfect, Paul? I mean, I mean, remember, you know, remember, remember that both of us were saved and you, uh, and uh, are you perfect? And you, you could see this disagreement. Not saying that's exactly how it went, but there was this disagreement to where they parted. And we know that um, because of that, they split up. Barnabas took with him Mark, and he sailed away to Cyprus. Paul took Silas with him, and they were also commended. And what I find this, this beautiful picture of the gospel, right, is even <laughs> in the purposes of God, even in our selfish you know, even in our at times when we're selfish and we're like, you know, making decisions on our own, thinking that we're doing it for the glory of God. I mean, God is still working in that. And we see here, even though, 
even though these two brothers have, have, have it's, almost, it's almost like a church split in a way, right? Like, oh, these guys just parted ways. But the beautiful thing of the sovereign purpose of God is instead of having one mission team, now you had two. And you had them going in opposite directions, and both of them went to go strengthen the churches, and the, and, and the gospel went further and further. So much so that Paul and Silas eventually took the gospel to Europe. And then here we see a man by the name of Timothy, a young man, introduced here. And look at verse 5 of 16. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then it's here in verse 6 through 10 that we come to the Macedonian call. And I wish we could spend more time here, but we're trying to tackle Ecclesiastes 4. But here it's that we see that Paul was going to take the gospel to Asia. But for, and however that looked, all right, we don't know. And I think sometimes as believers, we read the, we read the text and we forget everything that happens in between certain statements, you know. Maybe we just read it like boom, 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 boom. But you ever wonder, like, how did, how did the Holy Spirit reveal to, to Paul and this team not to go to Asia? I don't know. But whatever it was, it was made clear to them that you're not to go to Asia. And the vision that was given to Paul was, was in, in the evening was a man in Macedonia that said, come here and help us. And this has been so ministering to me because, um, <clears throat> as you guys all are aware, we're, um, Cornerstone is, is you know, longing to, to plant churches in the city. And, um, <clears throat> you know, prayerfully, one day um, be, we'll be able to do that soon. And one of the things that has been, honestly, just to share an honest frustration is, like, God, I, don't, I haven't had, like, a specific vision, God, looking for this, like, just specificity of, like, you know what? You need to go here and to this door and to this address, and being frustrated over that. And uh, on Friday, I had shared that with, um, with Brad and John, just being honest. And um, it was just, just so neat how, how God uses iron to sharpen iron and to, and to minister. But when you look here at the text, one other thing that comes clear is even though there is a specific location, it is a general calling. It's a go to Macedonia. And that much is what Paul knew to be obedient to. And it's so interesting that it didn't, it didn't say with, speci- with specificity, go to, this, go to this place in Macedonia. Macedonia is, is equivalent to northern-day Greece today. So it's a geographic area. And it's so neat that we get to see, okay, remember what I said about, uh, about leaving stuff out in between? Right? We see if you scan through the rest of Acts, what we see is, okay, we're going to go. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to take it to Macedonia. And what do we see? I mean, Paul had no idea. They're just they're going. And then what do we see here in verse 11? We see the conversion of Lydia, who was just a huge instrument in the church, a wealthy lady who would, who would house the church and who would minister to the saints. And then you read on and you look at verse 25. This is all occurring in, the, in this general geographical area. We see this, the, the, the famous story of the Philippian jailer who was converted. And I share that with you because at times, you know, it's... It, it's frustrating. God, like, do you have a specific, you know, do you have a specific thing? But God is calling us, and he, and he puts burdens on our hearts. And I'm praying this. I know that many of you in here, God has put some burdens on your heart to do something for him. And I'm not saying to do something to, for, to, to earn his love. No, because our calling first is to him as children of God. But there are certain things that God has placed on your heart. Maybe you were younger. Maybe it was a call to a specific people group, or maybe it was a call to something, or maybe it was a call just, I don't know. But I know that there are many of you, maybe that you've put it into the back burner later. Or you know what? It's, it's not mine. It's not, it's not the time. And I'm praying that today as we look at, um, as we look at this, we would, we would just be encouraged. And we would also know that the gospel initiatives that you and I are to be a part of, we're to do that with a team. 
And when you look at the book of Acts, one of the last things I want to point out here is look at Acts, right? And you'll see there's not this really solo mentality. Paul worked in the context of teams. You read the end of Romans, he's thankful for, for all the believers that are part of his team. We see here that even though he parted, way, parted ways with Barnabas, who did he take with him? He took Silas with him. And he says, you know what? I also need to take young Timothy with us as well. And we see his relationships, Paul and Titus and so forth, and, and, and the many people that he was involved. And I pray that one of the other central things that you'll see in the book of Acts is this context that people took these initiatives together. This is what God has called us to do, to make disciples, of course. And we're going to rally together, okay? We're going to come together, and we're going to give our lives for that very purpose. Now come into Acts, or Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes is definitely one of my favorite books in the Bible. And what I love is when you see principles in the New Testament emphasize those that are in the old. But Ecclesiastes, we know, being part of the wisdom literature. And we know here in this, in this, in this context of what was going on during this time, econ- economically it was, uh, it was a dog-eat-dog world. Ecclesiastes 4, 4, just a couple verses earlier. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. That was the culture of the day as well. It was a dog-eat-dog world. In, in this setting here, the teacher seeks to encourage the readers. Okay? He's, what is, what, the central lesson that he's trying to encourage all of us is our cooperation with others. More than this, he's going to use three telling illustrations to support his point. So he seeks not only to encourage his readers, all right, but he's like, he's honestly like on his knees saying, and pleading with them, all right, persuading them, all right, this is the way to go, cooperation with others. So we can formulate the teacher's goal as to persuade his readers not to go at it alone, but to cooperate with others. Perhaps a um, modern-day example of this fact of people looking out for number one is a story I found, and it's about a young man that called his mom and excitedly announced that he had just met the woman of his dreams, his mother said, well, why don't you send her flowers and invite her to your apartment for a home-cooked meal? The day after the big date, his mother called to see how things had gone. He said, Mom, the evening was a complete disaster. It was horrible. Why didn't she come over, his mother asked. Well, yeah, she came over, but she refused to cook. I heard a pastor once say that we don't take up our cross daily to crucify Jesus again, but to crucify our selfishness. And I know that sometimes we can see these examples in history and we can see, we look at different worlds and we look at tyrants who are, who, um, who are oppressive and, you know, we see the rich oppressing the poor. And we see people just looking out for number one. And, and the question that I've been thinking is, is, is how has that way of thinking invaded the church and affected how we live our lives. And I think one of the ways that it's revealed itself is, is this individualistic, rugged mentality has really like has warped our paradigms. And many of us, all right, as believers, we're operating in, in, in some wrong paradigms. I mean, look at Israel. We know that Israel often exhibited selfish individualism. When God brought Israel out of Egypt to form God's covenant people, he commanded them over and over and over again not to exploit their neighbors. Remember the commandments, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, you should not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We see the thrust of those commandments. And we see it like, I mean, the pinnacle is like, you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
Centuries later, the prophets had to warn Israel time and time again not to exploit their neighbors, but to care for them. Famous passage, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The teacher in Ecclesiastes addresses this issue of selfish individualism. As I had said in chapter 4, verse 4. You know, people were at this time in history were interested only in enriching themselves. They had no concerns for others or their needy neighbors. It was a world of cutthroat competition. So now the teacher begins here in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. The teacher calls attention to a case that he calls vanity. This is the case of the solitary individual. The original reads, there is a person and he has no second. He is all alone in all of his pursuits. He has no second, no companion. And the text says that he is that he's even without sons or brothers. That is the two closest male relations across two generations. And also the two relatives who might benefit from his toil through inheritance. This person has cut off all relationships in order to concentrate on the single goal of his life to gain riches for himself. You know, this thirst for wealth refers back to verse 6. Better is a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after wind. We know that many people today are dissatisfied with one handful. They want more and more, two handfuls at least. But we're warned, two handfuls come with toil. So the teacher writes in verse 8 that for this greedy person, there is no end to all his toil. Why is there no end? Because the teacher continues... His eyes are never satisfied with riches. The eye, the organ of desire, cannot be satisfied. All right, this leads to even more and more and more toil, frustration. There's no end to it. Finally, here we see that this rich man wakes up to the predicament of a situation, and he asks himself that, cru- that crucial question, for whom am I de- toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And the expected answer is, remember, it's no one. He has no second companion. It's like, no one. What am I doing this all for? He doesn't even have sons or brothers who would benefit from inheriting his estate. He is all alone, and he does not even benefit himself, or as he says, he's depriving himself of of pleasure. He finds no pleasure in life. Work offers him no, no pleasure because now he has become a slave to his toil. Eating and drinking offer no pleasure for him because he hardly takes time to eat and drink. Rest offers no pleasure for him because he's driven by toil and has little time for rest. There's no end to it. So the teacher sums it up in verse 8. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This person's life is vanity, literally a vapor, like a mist, here one second and gone, of no substance. You can't grab onto it. His life is futile, useless. It's insubstantial because he's all alone. Remember, again, he has no second. So the teacher concludes that this solitary rich man's life is an unhappy business. So contrast this solitary person's life with that of a person who has a second companion. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. When it comes to riches, the teacher has said in, uh, in, in verse 6 that more is not better. Two are better than one. The one to which he refers is undoubtedly the solitary worker whose goal 
is the accumulation of material gain, which cannot ultimately provide satisfaction. Of more value to that are the two who at least can share the fruits of their work. In fact, two can do much more than share the fruits of the work. And the teacher gives three illustrations of, of how two people as partners can help each other. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So the teacher here is thinking of um, people traveling in the Middle East. We know that during this time it could be dangerous, especially on, on dark nights. There's no streets, no street lights, not even flashlights. And walking on trails that frequently follow the edge of ravines, people would, could stumble and fall into these embankments. The landscape is also dotted with pits or concealed pits to trap animals. That's why in one of, in one of Jesus' parables, he's, he asks, can a blind person guide a blind person will not both fall into a pit? So it was dangerous to travel alone here in the Middle East, but two are better than one, for if they fall, if one, one of the other falls, one will lift up the other because they are together. They can help each other and survive. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. It's telling us the simple truth that that solitary person is going to perish. You live a life of individualism, just want to isolate yourself, just me, 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 me. That's emphasizing that you will perish. And today we still apply this wisdom of two being better than one, right? When we go, when we send children off to camp or, you know, off doing things or, you know, for those, for those of us that have multiple kids, right? Don't we, don't we imply the buddy system, right? Like don't, don't go alone, all right? Make sure you're always with someone, you know, when you're walking. We still apply this just simple wisdom in our own lives. The teacher's second illustration follows in verse 11. It reads, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, illustration taken from the dangers of traveling in the Middle East. We know that travelers often spent the, the night outdoors. When Jacob fled from Esau's fury, he traveled north until the sun had set. Then he slept outdoors with a stone for a pillow in Genesis 28. But how does one keep warm on frigid nights? People didn't carry, like, they didn't have, like, REI back then. They didn't have, like, these down sleeping bags, you know, like, hey, it's below 35, you know, it's going to keep me warm. Most people simply had a cloak, as we see in Exodus. And I know that this passage probably just freaks us out as guys, right? Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can they keep warm alone? But on cold nights, a little, a little cloak wasn't warm enough. So people would lie together. They would share their cloaks and their body heat. Hence, two are better than one, for they can lie together and keep warm. But what's the simple logic? But how can one keep warm alone? Can't. But now the teacher adds a third illustration in verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. Again, emphasizing the dangers of traveling, okay, in, in, here in the, in the Middle East, away from the safety of towns and cities, there was a danger of robbers who roamed the countryside. And we see this illustration even, even being used um, in one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Think of his parable about a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. By himself, the man didn't have a chance. Though one robber might prevail against another person, two partners will withstand one robber. Is the logic there? And even today, we act on this wisdom, right? In certain parts of the town or in certain areas, in certain cities, we, we tell people, hey, don't jog alone, don't, don't walk alone. It's dangerous. So we see here that these three illustrations give three instances of the advantages of being together with a second one. 
And, but they apply in a much broader area than that of traveling. Already in paradise, God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a partner. I will make a helper as his partner. And we see here that the simple truth is that God even created us not to be loners, but even, even you know, at the very beginning, creating us as social beings. Think about the dynamic of relationship between a husband and wife and the many advantages there are. Complimenting each other and running the household together, raising a family, maybe retiring together. And research shows today, in contrast to singles, married people live longer and are healthier throughout those extra years. And I know sometimes it's a challenge to believe that, right? This was reported in Time, January 28, 2008. The article explains that studies have linked marriage to lower rates of cardiovascular disease, cancer, respiratory disease, and mental illness. Marriages help both spouses cope better with stress. So you want to live long and get married. There are also many advantages for business partners to work together and to complement each other in the running of their business. We have people that are gifted in different capacities. Many advantages to having a pilot and a co-pilot at the controls of an airplane rather than a solitary pilot. So the teacher now, okay, taking these three illustrations, he sums it up here in verse, at the second half of verse 12 with a proverb. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's probably alluding to some near um, Eastern, you know, proverb concerning the benefits of friendship. Threefold cord is a rope with three strands twisted together. We know that a single strand could be, a single cord could be broken easily. And as we've seen in the illustrations, we're coming back, all right, tying this all together, right? Everything that consisted of one was not good. To fall in a pit and be alone. To be alone, you know, without other bodies is not good. And to be alone, all right, in, in, in the middle of the night, you know, and, and defend off robbers is not good. A three-fold, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. So we see here the repetition of two, 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 and then now three. Perhaps he's talking about more. I don't know. Now I can, at least I can draw this bridge now to where I'm seeing, man, I see the picture of the church. And we know that. We know that working alone can be futile at times. For those of you that have ever been on like maybe a, a, a short-term mission trip, I think this, that those trips reveal this, this central simple principle, right? Can you imagine if you went on your short-term trip by yourself? I mean, I remember uh, recently, um, not too long ago, I led a team of young people. We went out to Savunga, which is about uh, an hour northwest of Nome. And, um, you know, prior to going, we had, we had spent time together as a team. And we had, you know, we had just, we were just studying the gospel together. We were just, you know, you know also, you know, just practicing, sharing the gospel. And I remember just when we were going and, you know, lots of ministry opportunities. But I just remember seeing, like, all these different team members taking the gospel to, to different parts. I mean, there, you had some ladies that were just sitting down with other ladies, just ministering to them, sharing the gospel, leading Bible studies, serving every capacity. And you just see this, this beautiful picture of the body of Christ working together. And it's amazing, isn't it? And it's like for that short-term mission trip, everybody has realigned their life for that purpose, right? It's like, for example, if, you're, if you went to Mexico, it's like, okay, everybody, we're on this team. We're all going to go to Mexico. And this is what we're going to do. And everyone realigns their life. They pour their money. They, you know, they raise up funds, and they do everything, right? But what the Scriptures is calling us is to, that this is to be the fabric of our life every day. We're to be taking gospel initiatives, all right, not in this individualistic mindset, but to say, how can, we, how, can we, how can we take the team? And a simple way that I was thinking of was this. Was for some of us here in this, in this room, 
and I'm preaching to myself as well, we have this neighbor that we've been thinking of, right? And it's like, man, maybe God has put that neighbor on your heart to say like, you know what, just invite them over to dinner. And for whatever reason you haven't, okay? You know what, I've been so busy, like, man, I'm just, whatever it is, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm tired, not today, you know, and it's been now like eight months, okay? I think a simple gospel initiative that you would partake of in the context of community, you know, or maybe, maybe, you know what, you're an introvert. Naturally, I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't like to, like, go to, like, you know, social gatherings and, like, you know, like, meet a bunch of new people. I, know, I, I really don't. I prefer to, like, sit in a corner and read a book by myself. I, like, you know, I like that. I like the times of, like, internal reflection. And, and when, so when I'm going out meeting new people, it, it is a challenge for me, and I'm out of my comfort zone. Like, you know what? I fear every time I have to preach. I'm not a natural public speaker. Every time there's this fear. Ever since I was a kid. But God is just saying, just, just, just take simple steps of faith. And maybe with this neighbor, maybe that's some of you. You're like, you know what? I'm just an introvert. Um, uh, you know, I don't like meeting new people. And I totally understand that. But you know what a gospel partnership could look like? This is as simple as this. And I just I want to make this as simple as possible so that, so that all of you would be encouraged. And not, just, not that I would beat you saying, oh, you're not doing that or you're bad. No, I pray that this would just encourage you. You could be like this. You know a friend that is outgoing, and that's a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. And they're just, you know, we, have all, we all have those friends that are naturally like, man, they're, they're just so good. Like I have a friend, I mean, anywhere he goes, he's making friends, I mean, sharing the gospel. It's just spitting out, as people are getting saved. It's, you know, we have friends like that. You just tell them, hey, you know, I've been wanting to invite my uh, friend over for dinner. And would you just come, would you come over and just hang out? There's, there's, there's no initiative other than just having them over for dinner and begin to develop a relationship that, of course, prayerfully ends up where the gospel, it, it, you know, is shared. I mean, how simple is that? And I feel like there's, there's so many of these little initiatives and endeavors that God has put on our heart, but that we've kind of put, you know, we, we've kind of swept under the rug. And I pray that you would even know, even in the simple things, all right, not saying that you would just develop this life of dependence on people. No, but God calls us to work in partnership. I know where, I know where my own downfalls are. I know where my own weaknesses are. I want to surround myself with believers that are going to complement that as well. We know that God created humans for companionship. God gave Israel many laws which required that they care for their neighbor. And, of course, that those laws reach the climax in loving your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. In the New Testament, Jesus reiterated that we should not be selfish loners, but care for our neighbors. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. Jesus, Jesus himself acted on the wisdom that two are better than one. When he, sent out, when he sent out his disciples, did he send them out one by one? How many did he send them out by? Two by two. I mean, even, in, even if we're looking at the way of our master, the way of Jesus, it was in the context of team. And we know we can read the rest of Paul's writings when we see all the illustrations of, of how he describes the church. The church is the body of Christ made up of different parts to complement each other, to be in need for each other and to minister together. So the question is, church, all right, are we doing that? Whatever it is that, that God has called us to do, are we doing that? Being faithful to those little things. So the Old Testament teacher here in verse 13, he follows up his message with a final story. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
The old but foolish king is a tragic figure. Proverbs 12, 15 says, Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to advice. In Israel, the elderly were considered wise. Certainly the king should be wise. But, but here on the flip side is this old foolish king who will no longer take any advice from anybody. And one of the things I've been so blessed by is I've been meeting a lot of older saints, people who have been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive. And I tell you, one of the common threads that run and why I'm so inspired by them is that to this very day in their age, okay, talking about following Jesus like 30 plus years, right? They are still so desperate for Jesus. They've never come to a point in their life where they're like, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I plateaued. The gospel of Jesus still is so sweet to them. To this very day, their paradigms are being shifted because the gospel is still transforming their life today. And, and we can read some of our, some of, you know, whether it's our church fathers or, or believers who have gone before us. And, and one of my favorite lines, all right, was from a man by the name of John Newton who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And at the end of his life, this is, this is, this is the simple saying that he says, I don't know much. But there are two things I know for sure, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. But opposed to this man is this foolish king who won't take any advice. This foolish king is is as isolated as a rich man in the first story. The rich man devoted his whole life gathering riches and he cast off his companions, even his sons and brothers. But now we come to this figure, this king, who's an old and foolish king who will no longer take advice. So what can we insinuate? You know what? He's cut off all his advisors. You're all fired, okay? I know what I'm doing. No longer taking advice. He's going to go at it alone. He too, just like that rich man, is a solitary figure alone. But then the question is, is there a second one? Well, it's funny because yes, there is. And who is the second one? He is the successor to the king. He's waiting in the wings. That is in prison. Look at verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So the poor but wise youth can come out of prison to reign as king. Can you think of an example in the Bible where this, where this youth who was poor in prison became king? Joseph. Amen. Genesis 37, 30, Joseph coming out of prison in Egypt and rising to rule the nation. And Pharaoh said to him, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Genesis 41. But verse 15 continues. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. All the living followed that youth who replaced the king. He was not solitary like the old but foolish king. He was one with all the people that he led. This wise youth made a wise king. And in verse 16, he says, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Commentators have wondered about that phrase, like all that he has led. Is it hyperbole? Is it it an exaggeration? Maybe. But it makes us think again of Joseph, in whom we read in Genesis 41, 57. All the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine became severe throughout the world. So the teacher has in mind a great, wise king, perhaps such as Joseph. But then he continues in verse 16. And you have to love Ecclesiastes because sometimes you're like, what is this guy saying? I mean, he's he's moving to like all these different polarities. And it's, it's part of his teaching method. It says here, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. 
At some point, what is he saying about the king? That people would become critical of this king. And, and at, one, at some point in the future, they're no longer going to follow the king. In fact, they're going to reject the king. That simple truth, that political fame is short-lived. People are fickle. They may cast their palms before the new arrival, hail the king, but then a few days later say, crucify him. And surely, what is he saying? This also is a vanity. It's also a striving after wind. And with this statement that those who come later will not rejoice in him, the teacher may suggest that the wise king is soon forgotten. And if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 15, the teacher tells a similar story about a poor but wise man. This is what he reads. Now, there was found in the city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. The teacher said in chapter 2, verse 16, there is no enduring remembrance of the wise or of the fool's seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Again, we can think of Joseph, such great wisdom, such a great king. But we read in Exodus 1.8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Those who came after Joseph had forgotten him. Such a great king, yet what? Forgotten. So the teacher concludes, This also is a vanity and a striving after win. Even a life guarded by wisdom, even a life that reaches the pinnacle of human achievement, even a life that is exalted by the adoration of of millions is futile, useless in the end. So much so that the teacher calls it, it's like chasing after the wind. The great king and his wonderful deeds are forgotten. So with this, the teacher is warning us that there's a limit to where wisdom will get us in life. Certainly he warns it at first. You know what? Warning against going, in, going at this alone. That surely is futile. Two are better than one in many ways. And of course, we ought to cooperate with others in life. But we also ought to realize that we're to co- cooperate in the context that, you know what? This life is short. That's what he's telling us. And I know that all of us believe that, that life is short. Right? Whether, that, that, whether there has been something that has happened in your life to remind you of that central truth or whether you've just been reading the news every day and, and it's just proving to you that, you know what, God, life is so short. The real question is how much of us live in that reality today? If life is indeed short, are we, are we, are we reprioritizing our life around the gospel, which is the most important thing? And are we doing that? So thus, the teacher here challenges us not to work just by and for ourselves, but to work humbly with and for others. To not only work together, people, work humbly, not for your glory, for his glory. If we're working to make a name for ourselves, it's not going to last. But if we're working, surrendering to the king, King Jesus, and we're working in the context of a team of a church, That will last. And I want to work for something that lasts. Amen. And Jesus urges us, love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know that our culture is marked by this rugged individualism. And the selfish traits of this, I believe, they do seep into the church. And Christians cannot be individualists because we're members of a community. We're members of the body of Christ. And as members of the body of Christ, we ought to work together for the coming kingdom of God on earth. 
All our individual accomplishments will be forgotten in the future, but what we do for the, for the kingdom of God together, it will last. Paul encourages us, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what is it, brothers and sisters? What is it that God has been laying on your heart? And I'm praying that we could just um, really think about that. Has there been gospel initiatives that God has been putting on your heart that you have been just subsiding or pressing under? Has it been a simple thing like neighbors, you know, or, you know, just, you know, being part of, of an organization or I don't know. But I pray that also that you would also have your have your mind transformed, because I tell you what, this is the reality <laughs> to this very day. Jesus is continuously showing me how wrong some of my paradigms are. That, you know, there's just flat out times when you, you know, I don't know, you read the word and, and, and Jesus is just ministering you and he's like, and, you, and you, just, you just look at the life of Jesus and you're just enamored and you're like, wow, I'm so, I'm so far off base, Jesus. I can share with you in a recent example here is like coming now back to Acts 16 and being frustrated, like not having the specific like Macedonian vision. And, you know, uh, meeting with Brad and John every Friday morning, they were just we, we just I just was honest with them saying, you know, what, I'm really frustrated, guys. And as we as we had looked at the, at, at the text, we looked all throughout Acts and we're just saying, you know what, even though that there was a level of specificity to, to the Macedonian call, there was also just this, this call to just to a general area, you know, just saying Macedonia and just walk in faithfulness. And who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if you're going to encounter Lydia, a, 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 you know, a Philippian jailer? We don't know. And as I was uh, talking with him, I, I came to realize um, that maybe one of the root of my frustrations, and that here, here's a distorted paradigm of mine, is that we all know and we all can affirm, if I were just to preach to you about, about, God, about, God, about God being compassionate, loving, forgiving, merciful, and of course he is, he is wrathful and he is just, we all resonate with that, right? And if we ever doubt it, we just look at his son Jesus and there's the greatest evidence there. But so often in our life, we fail to believe that reality. Maybe, um, maybe we, we do proclaim, you know what? Jesus paid it all. Jesus has sealed me. And there's nothing God can do, you know, there's nothing I can do for God that will make him love me more make, make him love me less. And we, and we affirm that in our mind. But so often in the actions that we commit and the words we speak, we kind of operate far based from that. And one of the ways I saw that recently was part of my frustration of not having this vision was this level of expectation that I'd set up in my mind. And you know what? The elders and the pastors here have been so gracious. And they haven't set this expectation over me. But for some reason here, I was like, you know what? I don't want to let anybody down. I mean, the, the church has kind of trusted me and I, I don't want to fail them. Or you know what? You know, like, you know, like, I mean, Brad traveled down to Orlando with me to a church planning conference because he believes in it. And I was just like, what if I let him down? What if I fail? And then it was just... As I was analyzing that paradigm, it wasn't resting in the gospel. And what's so interesting is that morning, John Patton looked at me and said, Chris, I can't help but think there's just this level of expectation that you're under. And that that's not the case at all. 
You know, let, let us be, let us pray, pursue Christ. Let us move in the spirit and wherever he leads, let's follow that. And we just want to support that. But do you see that in our minds? Like there was, there was no one telling me like, hey, you need to do this. You need, you know, you need to be out in three months and do this. But in my mind, there was this paradigm of, of like, of a works-based theology of like, you know what? I got to do this. What if I fail? Or, you know, and how many of us have these different paradigms that, that God is longing to mold and transform? Where Jesus is even telling you to rest. You don't need to perform. You don't need to exert yourself. Just rest in what I've done for you and what I've accomplished for you on the cross. And how many of you have been recently strengthened by the grace you have in Jesus? I feel like so often as believers, we look at the gospel as just simply a doorway in which we enter the faith. When all throughout the gospel writers are saying, grow in your understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow in the simplistic understanding of the gospel. That God loves you perfectly and he's longing to redeem mankind to himself. And to rest in that. Right? Even the simple passage that we all know, Matthew 11, come to me all who are what? Yeah. Not come to me and perform. Come to me and, and see how many Bible verses you can recite. Come to me and show me how much theology you know. Come to me and show me how many, how many works you've done with your life. No, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened. And what's the promise there? I will give you rest. And there's so much that is implied there. So much that, are, so much that is implied in the scriptures too of how we're to go about doing things in the context of community. How can any of the, of the one another's in the scripture be fulfilled if you live and isolate yourself? Love one another by yourself. Carry each other's burdens by yourself. I mean, even in marriage, submission to what, yourself? And I'm praying that God that you would just be open to God transforming your paradigms too, and that you would also do some deep soul work to, to ask yourself, you know, where, wh- what gospel truths have I not been believing? And some of you maybe here have had some very bad experiences with the church. I've had in the past, and at one point in my life, I hated the church. I despised the church. I said, you know, I, I fell into the category of many of our young adults today. You know what? Jesus is cool, man. I, I want to roll with Jesus, but his, his people, I don't have anything to do with them. They're hypocritical. They, they put on a suit on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, they, they you know, and I was just burned by that because as a youth pastor, I was part of a church that, that, that had um, the pastors and elders fighting. And, you know, I don't know if you know anything, but being part of a youth pastor, you work with youth. And then having these young people not be able to be friends with this young people because this guy's on the pastor side, this guy's, that just eventually that wears on your soul. And when you come into the church and you're like, God, what I, what I see here, Lord, is just not, it's not, it's not working. Where, where are we falling short, God? And some of us here, we may hate the church. But I tell you what, one of the central things that God has just communicated was, Chris, and hating the church, you're hating me. And God spoke that through me through Galatians 2 when Paul had confronted Peter. And, you know, Peter had begun to withdraw from the Gentiles. And Paul came to his face and said, your actions are not in line with the gospel. And I felt like Paul was speaking to me. 
Chris, your, your, your actions are not in line with the gospel. This is the very thing that Jesus died for. And I share that with you because if you're, I know that being part of community and partnering with people, it's just, there's so much implied there, isn't it? It's messy. Getting involved in other people's lives, getting, I mean, partnering people and becoming a family, inviting them over, letting them see your life, being exposed, that's, it's messy. But God is calling us to do this in the context of community, amen? In the context of the local church. So I pray this, that you would, you would begin to just really pray and um, ask yourself, what is it that God has called us to? If you're, if you're the father of a family, maybe there's just some partnerships. Maybe there's just some friends that where you need to pursue some friendships with. And I close with this, some quotes from C.S. Lewis. In the four loves, C.S. Lewis writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not become broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. He continues, friendship arises out of mere companionship with two or more of the companions when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And he closes, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Let's pray. I'm just going to ask if we could spend some time in prayer together, just talking with the Lord. And I don't know what it is that um, God has put in on your heart, but I'm just asking you just a few minutes to wrestle with that. I mean, even if it's as simple as, you know, having that neighbor over or if it's been a family member or if it's been like, you know what, you've been you've been putting yourself on an island and maybe you just maybe you just need to take a step of faith to to connect with other believers, whatever it is. I'm praying, can we just spend some time in prayer just, just, just seeking God's face on that?